I'm Edith Shackleborty and this is The Business. Coming up this week, have our politicians gone soft on the bankers? We peer through the political hot air and white papers in search of the truth. Plus, school's out and college too. But what chance for new school leavers and graduates to avoid the burgeoning doll queue? And getting a pounding, while Sterling's fall may force shop prices to rise. This is The Business from The Guardian. Well, we have a splendid panel this week, but keeping with the shopping theme, I wonder whether they see themselves as Waitrose or Cost Cutter. Making his debut on the pod is Guardian columnist John Freeland. Jonathan, to ask you the smash hits question, what kind of shop would you be? So you're thinking I'm a pound shop. That's where you're going with this, isn't it? No. Um, that's very, very unkind. Um, I do that as an Ocado man. Oh, well, you know, I have, if my, can I reveal that I am an Ocado customer? That's embarrassing, but true. That's so predictable. That's I'm a terrible cliche. Um, I was wondering if you were going to say I'm the antiquarian bookshop. Um, I'm probably, I'm a, I would say I'm a window shop. In other words, you go in, you look around and you think, mm, quite okay, but then you don't buy anything. Heather Stewart's the Observer's economics editor. And Heather, I've got you down at Selfridges Food Hall. Oh, you're joking. I'd definitely like to think of myself as a dusty old bookshop, I think, rather than uh, swanky selfridges. And we've got Niels Prattley, our markets guru. Uh, Niels, have you got the balls to say that you're Aldi? Well, I think like Jonathan, I have to confess to sometimes shopping at Ocado, but um, <gasps> for preference for window shopping, I'd say Condor Cycles, particularly when the Tour de France is on. <laughs> Thoroughly bourgeois panel this week. Well, this week has seen both the Tories and the Lib Dems tell us how they would fix our broken banking system. When the financial crisis erupted last autumn, each of the parties clamoured to out-tough each other with their rhetoric. But just nine months down the line, that's given way to a, a more moderate tone. For Tory leader David Cameron, the problems come down to Labour's creation of too many financial watchdogs. This crisis has shown we need one body to be unambiguously in charge, always on top of things. So we will abolish the tripartite system and we will give the Bank of England an explicit role in macro-prudential, system-wide regulation. We need to make sure the financial sector serves the long-term interests of the economy, not just its own short-term interests. The financial sector must understand it cannot behave as if the crisis had never happened. Niels, you didn't think much of the Tory proposals, did you? I didn't think much of their main proposal, which was to abolish the um, tripartite system, because I think it's way, way, way too simple to say that the financial crisis can be blamed entirely on that system. I think clearly the three bodies in that system, the FSA, the bank and the Treasury, did not fulfil their duties as they should have done. But to conclude from that, that the system itself needs reform and slim down to a position where the Bank of England dominates proceedings, I think is just, is just mistaken. I think there may be a slight advantage in, in concentrating power in the Bank of England. It may be the case that because it looks after the regulation of banks on a day-to-day basis, that it is better able to make big-picture macro assessments of where risks lie. But I think the improvement would be marginal at best, and I think the process of getting there from the current system to the one that the Tories propose would introduce many, many unnecessary risks. There would be two or three years of huge transition, and in the meantime, our batting power in Brussels would be reduced. I mean, it's quite hard now for Adair Turner, the head of the FSA, to go along and chair various Euro- European bodies. You know, yeah. he's cut off. Heather, we'll move in the regulator from Canary Wharf, where the FSA currently sits, to Threadneedle Street, the home of the Bank of England. Will that really make that much difference? It's not clear to me that it would. I mean, it's true that the FSA clearly hasn't done its job properly over the last 10 years or so, and, you know, Gordon Brown set up this shiny new regulator which was supposed to uh, echo the SEC in the States and 
felt that that had somehow fixed the problem of financial stability and everyone could forget about it, which I think, you know, both politicians and the Bank of England then did for 10 years. And, you know, as it turned out, it wasn't a great idea. But it's not clear to me that the Bank of England would have warned about many of these things. For example, giving it these macroprudential powers, which would allow it to tighten lending standards, for example, at times of boom. The bank consistently told us that there was no housing bubble, that even if there was, it wouldn't particularly create, uh, you know, too many economic consequences. If it burst, it wasn't really affecting consumer spending. And even now they say there wasn't a consumer boom. So to think that the bank would somehow have stepped in and cut back on lending and and stopped us being in this this boom-bust situation is, is just wrong, I think. Jonathan, we had two sets of banking white papers this month. One from Labour, one from Tories. For Labour, its white paper was about showing it could do more than just tactics and firefighting, that it actually had a strategy for the financial sector. For the Tories, its white paper was about showing it could actually talk about banking issues with some credibility. Did either of those achieve its aim? Well, certainly with the Tory proposal, I I agree with you. I think it comes from a desire to show that they're grown up and that they're ready for government. And you see this, they're doing this in other areas so that William Hague has been talking about how foreign policy would be in the national interest. You know, they're trying to move from being opposition to being government in waiting uh, and just to seem authoritative. And I think the economics has been a weakness for the Conservative front branch. It's it's a paradox that George Osborne is simultaneously the most powerful person in the Conservative Party, apart from David Cameron, and in a way, one of their weaker players, I think. seen to have dropped the ball a couple of times on the economy. So this was all about an attempt to look grown up and serious and statesmanlike. And you just see that in part of the language. I think it's um, problematic for them. I defer obviously to Niels and Heather on the specifics. But I think on the the notion of just redrawing the responsibilities and taking something out of one department into another, that's problematic for them because that is one of the very things they attack Gordon Brown over. And in his reshuffles, Brown has had a bad habit of renaming government departments and Famously, you know, this programme is called The Business and uh, now there is DBiz or whatever the um, Department Mandelson heads. And inside there is innovation and skills in universities, which was once its own ministry and before that was part of uh, the education department. So, And it's been powerful for Cameron to say, do you really think just putting new initials and new headed notepaper on a department and shuffling a few desks is going to deal with the problem? Of course it isn't. And now he's guilty of just the same thing. Well, one politician who did have clear ideas last autumn about getting out of the banking crisis was the Lib Dem, Vince Cable. This week, he gave a speech at the Stock Exchange, setting out a decidedly more radical vision for the banks. I asked him whether the momentum for change had dissipated since last autumn. You're right that quite a lot of impetus has been lost. Uh, Where we are still considerably more radical than, I think, the other parties is in terms of what we say about public ownership. We're never in favour of nationalisation for the sake of it, but we've always taken the view that now that the taxpayer is heavily involved in banking, uh, the big banks which have been semi-nationalised or nationalised need to be run in the public interest, that lending needs to be directed to maintain a flow of capital to solvent companies. We think we've got a plan for them to be there for probably a decade. Uh, we're strongly opposed to a premature sell-off. Uh, we're strongly opposed to ideas like the asset protection scheme, which are a way of avoiding public ownership uh, and uh, involve loading contingent risk onto the taxpayer. 
and we envisage a, a continued role for the state in banking, not necessarily on a big scale, but there are areas like uh, the millions of people who are marginalized, who can't get access to banking services, and we support the idea of the post bank, for example, working through the post office network of freestanding but publicly owned uh, institutions. So we're, we're much more committed to a new model than I think uh, those people in the city who want to return to the status quo ante. Vince Cable there. Jonathan, let me ask you the same basic question. Last autumn, the politicians are making more resolutions than on New Year's Day. No more big bonuses, no more mega banks, an end to the age of responsibility. What happened? It is um, galling, I think, and also it will be... I often think if this will have a long-term effect equivalent to the feeling a lot of people had over those demonstrations against the Iraq war, and you hear this still six years later, you know, where people say, well, two million people walked out on the streets and nothing happened. Obviously, we're impotent and politics never works. And I think you will hear an echo of that in this, which is here's the system, a moment rather, in British life where uh, it was seen publicly that the banks and the financial sector had driven the country into the wall uh, and everyone felt there would have to be a reckoning and things would have to change. And then months later... We're reading bonuses are back on on the front page of our paper and and just a a sense that apart from a little bit of tweaking, business is returning to the status quo ante, as Vince Cable said. And I think that's going to make people despair of politics. So I think it's a desperately serious issue how it's been allowed to happen. It's a variety of things. I mean, one of them is that attention was shifted at a crucial point in a way just when the British public's uh, boot was on the neck of the bankers. Suddenly it was uh, politicians themselves in the dock over the expenses affair. And in a way, as a national conversation, we seem only to cope with one topic at a time. So everything moved on to that. And then before you know it, it's kind of Andy Murray and the ashes and, and it's summer and people go on holiday. And this is a sort of odd feature of our life, national life, where people, have, you know, a huge head of steam is built up and it then seems to disperse. And I, I often wonder what it is. Is it to do with the fact that we have such an intense media in this country that people get it out of their system? You know, we have all the phone-ins and the blogs and the front pages and you ha- you can't maintain that kind of anger for three or four months. It, it tends to blow over. Um, there are deeper issues too, which is that the politicians in the end in our country, so dependent on finance, are very, very wary of taking it to them because they believe, Labour in particular, that there was some kind of Faustian bargain that it said to the bankers in the city a long time ago, will leave you alone. You keep shoveling the cash our way so we can spend it on everything we need to do, uh, schools and hospitals and all the labour investment. And to ask Gordon Brown, who was so central to that Faustian bargain, to rip it up now is perhaps to ask just too much of him and he's just not been able to do it. Okay, that's the mainstream. But let's talk specifically about the left, because last autumn they were talking about this being a progressive moment. This was their chance to show that state was back. They haven't really come forward with too many ideas since, have they? Not, not only have they not come forward really with too many ideas, I mean, at the very top level they have, you know, Nobel laureates, Paul Krugman and Joseph Stiglitz, they're coming out with plenty of ways to reimagine our global economy. So I wouldn't fault them. But it's not just a lack of ideas, it's a lack even of anger, I think. I mean, it is an amazing thought to, um, to note that all of this has not brought people out onto the streets. There have been demonstrations about Israel's action in Gaza, but you have not had uh, British people coming onto the streets about bankers and everyone else ripping us off and potentially tanking our economy. And you do wonder about that. Where are the uh, priorities? Where is the anger? So that even the G20 protests, I mean, I was speaking to a G20 protester this week. She was at pains to tell me that she was there protesting about climate change. (laughs) She wasn't there about the economy. (laughs) What's it going to take to drive people angry in this place? You know, that's what I often 
do wonder, and it seems a very bizarre thing about our organised left, that they get very exercised about things thousands of miles away yes. over which they have no control, mm-hmm. uh, hence my reference to the Middle East, but do not seem to get their blood up over something which is directly here, which you would think would infuriate people. Nils, when you talk to people in the city, mm-hmm. they have the air of reprieved men. Yeah, I think by and large they do. I mean, particularly at, some of the, particularly at the big banks. I mean, some of them cannot believe their luck. I mean, what has happened here is that um, a few banks have collapsed or been rescued by the state and are sort of in the casualty ward. The survivors have got a, have got a clear playing field and they've got it to themselves. They can increase their profit margins. They can increase the fees that they charge for underwriting rights issues and so on. They can increase the, the bid offer spread on, on various products. All these things are a great advantage to them. We've seen Goldman Sachs report record profits. It won't be surprised me if, if Barclays comes along in a year or two and, and it is, is sort of exceeding the profits that it made right at the height of the boom. These guys have got no competition. I mean, I think that aspect of, the, of this story has been sort of underplayed. And you, you would have thought that the natural response from politicians would be to say, let's have a competition inquiry here. Let's see if this, this industry is actually serving the interests of the consumers and see if we can restrain in some way. The Tories did propose that, didn't they? A new competition inquiry into banking because maybe these big mega banks are not competing enough. I mean, maybe they would say they're hearing what you're saying. They, they did, and I think, but I think they mixed it up with how they would dispose of the taxpayers' interest in these banks. The yes. two two very different yes. issues. Heather, let me bring in the uh, gold-plated economist here. Economists are looking around for lots of parallels for this period we're going through, whether it's the Great Depression or whether it's Japan. And in many ways, this is a lot of similarities with Japan in the 1990s. We're in a lull now after a huge crisis in which we haven't really had the kind of final reckoning. We're having this kind of slow recovery going on in the banking sector that Nils was talking about. Mm. But then that sits rather uneasily with all this talk about having some kind of recovery later on track. If, if Japan's anything to go by, we won't have a particularly strong economy. We'll just have a long, long period of stagnation. I think that's probably what we're heading for, to be honest, given the state of the public finances. um, The IMF put a a hefty report out on the UK economy last week. And one of the things they pointed out is if you look at the finances of of Britain's households, for example, they're in a much worse state than those in the Eurozone or or those in the US. And you can't just shrug that off in three months or six months or nine months. You you know, we may get quite a bounce back soon because companies have been destocking so fast and running down their inventories that actually... Simple math says that as soon as they start the factories back up again, like Honda has, for example, you you know, you get a bit of a kick in growth. But I think that's going to be a bit of a false dawn. And what we're going to have is probably a long period where we all have to fix our personal finances. The government is going to have to hit us with tax rises and public spending cuts to sort out the public finances. And it could be quite a long time before we get that, you know, that kind of spring in our step that that, that the British economy had, you know, from sort of 2000 onwards, really. To add one thing, I mean, one thing that has been correctly identified by the government or or via David Walker's review on corporate governance is that the the real agents for change here are, are, are the owners of the companies, the owners of the banks, the shareholders. That's us. Uh, which is ultimately us, the, the people who, whose um, the pension funds are being managed by various fund managers. And those guys really have been asleep at the wheel. They're, they're, they're all these things on big bonuses and risky uh, schemes have been done in their name. And they have um, they've not demanded more information about what's going on. They haven't changed the chairman of remuneration committees and so on. This is their moment to step forward. And it is quite depressing that some of those fund managers are not really um, stepping up and making those those cases. In the background, some of them are, I mean, but it's not by any means universal. I think David Walker, in his review last week, put the ball in their court and say, get on with it. The bargain that Jonathan talked about, I mean, what we've, what's really been 
revealed by the events of the last year to 18 months is that this bargain that, that Labour thought that it had, which was we'll be very relaxed about people getting filthy rich, uh, you know, the flip side of that is we have a great healthy economy, we have world champion banks, etc, etc. You know, that bargain clearly hasn't worked. It's fallen apart. And what's extraordinary is that Labour doesn't seem to get that and, you know, is still prepared to sign off on Stephen Hester's bonus, which could, you know, net him a total of up to £10 million. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. They don't seem to have learned the lessons of what's happened. I think what Labour are thinking is that, and, and praying will happen, is that the bargain will be restored. In other words, that the money will come back flowing again. And they, you know, for obvious reasons, they're praying for a recovery just to come in time for election day. But more directly, they're just thinking they can't see another model. They oh, think yeah, this is right. the way that the money flew, flowed last time. And mm. just fingers crossed, mm. bow down, touch wood and hope that the money will flow in that same direction again. They cannot imagine another way of the economy working. Voters, I think, see this point about the banks being a utility independent. That must change how they see bankers pay. Because I think until then, there, first of all, there was a huge mystique around the city in banking. And everyone thought, well, I don't know what they do. But it's like a brain surgeon. You know, he obviously is pretty good at it. And he can get the big money. Now, suddenly, people think, well, these people aren't taking big risks at all. Because if anything goes wrong, we end up paying for it. And though I think it makes it very hard for people to stomach these big pay rises, because it seems like a, 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 a no-lose deal, where you make enormous money if it goes well. And if it goes badly, someone else picks up the tab. So the voter anger is there. It just does not have. Our politics is clogged. The arteries of it are clogged. There isn't a way for that anger to flow through. OK, we'll leave that there. Yes, school's out for summer, and for those on the hunt for jobs, the news is grim. This month has seen the biggest surge in unemployment since 1971. The rise took the jobless total to 2.38 million, the highest level since 1995. Firms have stopped hiring, we're told, and that will have an especially drastic effect on young people seeking work. Heather, what's the outlook for new school leavers and graduates this summer? Well, it's not great, to be honest. I mean, the, the figures, the, the latest figures that we've had from the government cover um, the period up to May. And already it was clear from, from that, that that unemployment has risen much faster over the past year among the young than among the population as a whole. So the unemployment rate for, for the entire working population has gone up by 2.5%. And for the 18 to 24-year-old group, it's gone up by 5.3%. Now, that's even before we get the rush of, of school leavers and graduates onto the labour market. So the outlook for these people is pretty bleak. And they're really worrying thing is that that the evidence um, from economists shows that if you have a a spell out of work early on in your working life, it can have what they call a scarring effect. It can still be clamping down on your income years and years afterwards because you get off to a bad start. You know, a year later, another crop of graduates come onto the market with, you know, whose knowledge is more up to date with whom you're having to compete. And actually that can, you know, have a knock on effect throughout your working life. And that's why this is a situation that that the government really needs to, to think quite urgently about, I think. Jonathan, historically, unemployment's been periods of high unemployment have often turned into political flashpoints. I mean, we remember just from 1979, Labour isn't working. During the eight, dog days of the 80s, Labour consistently attacked Thatcher for the industrial shakeout. That doesn't seem to have happened this time. Well, yes, and partly, I mean, in some ways, I'd question the premise, because if you remember, late, uh, Tories went into the 1987 election with really high unemployment and, 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 and kept, managed to be re-elected. It's a very grim political conclusion to draw that, uh, that there's not necessarily a very high price to pay for mass unemployment because the poor and the unemployed don't vote, or certainly not in the big numbers. So you can actually get away with it. And so, you know, it was a refrain right through my adolescence and teenage years about 3 million unemployed or 4 million unemployed. And yet there the Tories came back in 83 and 87 and 92. 
um, when unemployment was beginning to come down. So I think you can actually survive high unemployment. That said, it is particularly damaging for labour, and I think that's because labour is labour, and so labour isn't working was an incredibly powerful attack to make against a government that's meant to be, if nothing else, about employment, you know, to the extent that the party is even called Labour. It also should be said that it haunts Labour ministers, this issue. The one thing that, I, you know, and I think we can always be sceptical about them and cynical, but the I think it's sincere that Brown and the others are haunted by the idea that another lost generation, they think that was huge in the 80s. Many of them, remember, represent constituencies where mass unemployment hit very hard in the 80s uh, in the northeast and other places. And the idea that they will be, just as Heather's saying, people who are scarred for life, and they still have it. You know, these are MPs who are sitting in their surgeries with someone in their, in their 40s or 50s who was young, unemployed in the 80s, and they think that the consequences of that will be with us for two, three decades from here on in. So they're terrified by youth unemployment, and I think that, that fear is sincere. Niels, when you look through corporate reports or you speak to people on the employment side, you don't really see any sign of recruitment coming back, expansion coming back anytime soon, do you? No, it is very hard to see companies talking about um, more employment. I mean, some supermarkets, for example, um, are opening more stores. And if you open more stores, you employ more people. But, you know, aside from those sort of a few sectors like that, I think, to be honest, I think there's a general acceptance that unemployment is going to go to three million. Uh, The turn will come when the economy turns. And those sorts of jobs you're talking about, they're not graduate jobs. And and Heather, I mean, I remember Ed Balls and Gordon Brown always talking about braining up and that you had to pay your way through university, but the payback for that was you'd get a better job absolutely that, and that entire really, contract's broken that now. really rankles you know if you talk to the nus about it for example is that these are people who've gone into university and paid you know three thousand pounds a year or more in tuition fees and borrowed to pay for their own maintenance you know as you say on as part of this bargain that right well then they'll come out into these high value added knowledge economy jobs and actually you know if you're burdened with that level of debt and you then come out into a labor market and it, you know through absolutely no fault of your own it's impossible to for you to find a job at the level that you would expect that, that's, that's pretty tough. And finally this week. We're used to hearing of the weak pound as a boon to the UK economy, but it has its downside too. This week, Argos announced that the pound's weakness against the dollar and the euro meant it would have to jack up its prices by around 5%. That follows warnings from the clothes chain next that sterling's decline would force up its prices too. Niels, when you hear stories like that, do you think hmm, they actually have been affected by the weak pound or do you think they just want to cover some kind of specific corporate weakness that they've got? Clearly, if the pound does fall by 25% or whatever it was against a basket of currencies, uh, there is going to be an effect on uh, retailers who are buying their goods overseas. I think, you know, the picture is not as quite as clear cut as you put. I mean, Next actually today have put out a trading statement in which they are sort of revising their opinion somewhat. They're saying, actually, we've been, it turns out we've been able to buy uh, goods in the Far East at better prices than we were expecting, So, which is probably reflecting the fact that the pound has bounced back a, a little bit in the last um, two or three months. Are they covering it up? Well, I think, I mean, to be honest, at the moment, you know, demand from shoppers is so, it's, it's fragile. So they, they will get away with what they can. I think the clothing retailers have generally been talking about putting prices up by about 3%, you know, over last year's prices, with some expectation of getting that. There's, there's clearly, you know, the hot weather has brought shoppers out in the last um, month or two. So they are getting those price rises at the moment. The demand seems to be there at the moment. I think the minute that that tails off, I think you would see prices coming back because, you know, they're playing a delicate game. They've got to, they've got to buy goods and hope to sell them as many as possible at full price. And I think they're judging it at the moment at about right. Heather, there's sort of pressure on retailers that Niels is talking about. Does that, where does that put, sit with all the talk we've got of deflation of prices constantly falling? 
Well, no one's quite clear how exactly the, the, the tension, as it were, between the inflationary pressure of, of the pound falling and the deflationary pressure of, of very weak demand is going to play out. But I, I mean, I think Nils is right that when you look at the what's happening to pay deals at the moment, for example, and the number of people who are having to accept pay freezes or even cuts in pay, cuts in hours, you know, the idea that retailers are going to be able to make large price rises stick just, just doesn't work, I don't think. And on that note, it's time to say thanks to our panel, Jonathan Friedland, Heather Stewart and Niels Prattley. If you want to give your feedback or find links to our stories, our blog lives at guardian.co.uk slash the business. Our starring producer this week was Ian Chambers. I'm Edith Chakraborty and that was The Business. 